Again, we're here at the Equity Derivatives Conference in Las Vegas. Thrilled that they're helping us uh, to, to sponsor and, and be involved in every way, shape, and form. Bringing in one of my friends, Noel Smith of Convex Asset Management. Now, Noel, you and I have chatted over the years. We've done a couple of interviews. You know, one of the reasons I love talking to you is, is that you actually came out of the Chicago pits, right? So you were on the open outcry system in the specialist system in terms of option market making, et cetera. You've experienced the dynamics of market making. And that to me is kind of one of these things that, that a lot of people miss, right? So they, they, they immediately think like, well, I'm going out and buying stocks and they don't stop and think about who am I buying it from? Who's the party involved? Who's selling it? Is it somebody being matched to me? Is it a synthetic creation? And in the options space, you know, it's the ideal is, is that you're matching somebody on the other side. But the reality is in options, because there's so many tenors, there's so many strikes, the odds of you finding somebody on exactly the other side of that trade is pretty much slim and none which is where the market maker comes in. So I'll let you pick up for a second there and just, just talk for a second about this dynamic of like what actually market making is, particularly in options and what sort of behavior you, know, you would see these entities playing. And I understand that's not what you're, you currently do, but that is what you used to do in the past. I'm making up this analogy, but thinking of uh, a market maker as being you know, like an auto parts store, the chance of you needing a car part and somebody else needing to sell that same car part at that same time when there's 10,000 parts within a car, uh, it's pretty slim. pretty slim. So you go to AutoZone, you buy your windshield wiper or whatever else, and then AutoZone has set that price. And they have set that price because they think that it's some level below fair value. They said that a windshield wiper is worth $20, but in actual fact, they may have purchased it for 12 um, so what they do is they set a fair value on an item and that item can be a, a windshield wiper or it can be an out of the money call and around that fair value, they, you know, produce a spread and they end up being the, the conduit that you as a investor or trader trade with. And that is where that liquidity comes from. That's how it's so efficient. That's how it's so fast and, uh, usually priced fairly around a spread. And just very quickly, like when you talk about priced, right? So most people are familiar with the dynamics of what the Black-Scholes model is, et cetera. You know, you and I both have come through the pit dynamics where we actually ran sheets that gave us, you know, descriptions of where you actually want to be priced in these things. But at the end of the day, you're not actually pricing to a Black-Scholes model. You're pricing to what's called a local vol model, which is designed to help you transact, right? Because really the only way you make money as a market maker is if your prices are competitive with everybody else. And so you're basically setting something that says, well, it should be something like this. This is the replicating price, which is really what Black-Scholes is all about. And then you have to price it to the market with some spread around that. When you think about the dynamics of what drive that local vol market, what are the things that can impact that? It is a function of many things. So there's human beings that have piles of money, and these piles of money wax and wane with the profitability of their trades. And if they have a lot of pressure on at a certain position that is disadvantageous to them, they will move their prices more swiftly, more swiftly, more violently. And a lot of times they will create vacuums in liquidity and items that you know you think should trade continuously, like Black Shoals fallaciously prices that are continuous pricing, that um, those prices are not always contiguous. You know, using like biotech as an example, if you have a drug and the stock is at $100 and the drug is amazing, it goes to 500. If it's not amazing, it goes to two. Um, the idea that, you know, it's a binary event, it's a bimodal event and it is not continuous pricing. So that is all priced into it. And that's what you, I think, are alluding to with the local model, which is to say, well, I have my new price that's two or I have my new price that's 500 and I'm pricing everything around 500 now because two is not on the table. Yeah. 
Well, so actually, it's really funny. So you, you unfortunately weren't a fly on the wall, though it sounds like you were a fly on the wall in the past couple of interviews that we've just done. So this idea of bimodal pricing and the tension that that creates is something that I think we're really seeing right now. I think that's particularly true in the rates market, right? So Harley was bringing up previously the idea of the one-year, one-year being priced at give or take 360. That's just the wrong price. And it's because we're actually pricing zero and we're pricing five, right? Right. Um, are there other examples of that that you're seeing in the market right now where effectively the market is kind of trapped between, you know, Scylla and Charybdis and we just don't know which one we're going for? I think that a lot of the attention that's being pulled into the zero data expiration options are a proxy for not wanting to have a position. It is a less committal way of having a delta that you will pay some level of premium and you forego that premium for the, the pounding that you might receive in a drawdown. Um, I don't know enough about the rates market to know what the proper pricing on a June 1 bill is relative to the next tenor. I don't know if it's you know that one day's interest minus whatever you haven't paid or if it's a hard zero yeah. and how those things have diverged honestly is not my skill set. I don't really know why that's happening. Um, I mean, I know in theory, but I don't know in tradable applications. So we actually pulled all of our bill positions as a result of that. Um, the, I guess just leave it at that. I don't understand the, that dynamic, especially around the debt ceiling, how it's being reflected in the rates market because that market is not as optionable as where I, I tend to traffic, which is in the 10-year note space. Yeah. So when you think in the 10-year note space, right, because this is one of the topics that Harley and I have on a, on a fairly regular basis, that strikes me as a, a somewhat interesting position because it feels basically like the pivot point, right? Um, you know, we again, we were talking yesterday or talking in the, in, the, in the prior interview that like the weird thing for me is, is that I think the one year, one year, you know, give or take 360 is absolutely wrong. But that's because I think it's either zero or five. And then if I flip that, you know, the two-year, one-year is either zero or five, and then the three-year, one-year is either zero or five, and it's almost contingent on the direction of the one-year, one-year, right? So you have these series of Bayesian probabilities that then run through this whole system right now that, to me, are what's actually being described by the vol markets and rates, this incredible uncertainty about do we need to go to zero, can we stay at five sort of thing. If you think about the implications of that, and you're seeing less of that in the in tens, I would argue, but it, but if you're thinking about the implications of that for other markets like equities, right? What's your reaction to that? Is is the equity market vol capable of pricing this in, or do you think the zero DTE is showing something? Or somebody's wrong. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if that means this goes up and this goes yeah. down, or they widen out or whatever. But I think that you know if you look at credit as being the relative of equity, you know. Mike Green with a million dollars in no credit is in a different cash position than Mike Green with a trillion dollars of credit, yep. the exact same guy. So if you have access to money and the price of money is cheap, your ability to stay solvent and continue your business is much higher. So I think that having uncertainty in the rates market where you see the 10-year note straddle yesterday into the minutes being priced at like 13 vol and then today it's being priced at like relatively nine vol with the skew structure going from the top to the bottom and relatively flat through time it's basically saying i don't know yeah. and uh if you look at what the fed is saying two percent who, who knows how much to believe but you have to take them at some level of credibility because they are the authority and then you look at what the rates market is saying which is quite different there is a trade there and I think that trade is being manifested in indecision and that indecision is being pulled forward. So if you are a manager and you're, you have to have, you know, hundred million dollars of deltas on and call it the S&P 500, whatever. Um, 
what is your deal? Do you want to go out there and buy E-minis? Do you want to buy spies? Do you want to just carry that Delta One instrument until death do you part? Or do you want to maybe take some gamma risk, theta risk, and just express some of those opinions in the shorter tenors? And is it safer? Depends on the function of time. Because if, you know, if, would you rather wear a spy for the next six months or would you rather bleed data for the next six months? Depends, right? And the rates market is shifting all the time. I mean, if you look at the probability of a rate, another 25-bit rate, rate hike in June, it's up dramatically and then it lasts 48 hours. Yeah, so there again is yet another trade. And I think that the indecision that you're seeing expressed in volatility absolutely has a equity component and a bond component to it. And those two things to me are very related. Now, you mentioned credit, because to me, credit is actually one of these really interesting nexuses of where I'm seeing this tension manifest itself, right? So we're seeing uh, credit spreads quite tight relative to certainly what we've seen historically. They're, they're wider than they were in the lows of, you know, the tights of 21, for example, but significantly less wide than they've been in prior periods of stress. And I think most people would look at the rates market, the debt ceiling, are we in a recession, are we not in a recession? This whole analysis is effectively saying, like, well, credits should be wider, right? There should be more risks expressed there. We're seeing this same kind of underlying dynamic where I would argue that it's the supply and demand forces, very little credit issuance that's actually coming out, particularly in high yield, more in the IG space, but very little in high yield, against an increased recognition that, well, we can debate whether there's a 25 basis point rate hike. I think we're fairly confident there's not a 500 basis point ahead of us in the next year, right? And so you're, Harley's smiling because he's, he doesn't entirely agree. But the, um, the, 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 the question becomes basically, so what I would argue is happening is we're seeing people rotate out of floating rate debt into fixed rate debt, i.e. selling loans, buying bonds, credit quality is deteriorated enough in loans that they don't see that much of a downgrade in terms of the credit quality component. That's creating additional demand for bonds right now, you know, high yield bonds, while issuance has just evaporated. There's just no demand because companies seem to realize almost exactly the same tension. We can't actually issue at these levels and remain solvent, right? Yes. So what can cause these tensions to resolve? Like what, you know, I hate to ask like, what is the catalyst, but it does feel like there is a catalyst. Is it the debt ceiling? Is it a debt resolution? Is it? I, I think the debt ceiling is theater. Um, I don't have any reason to think that there's a trade there other than the very short term. I think that each side is almost compelled based on their donor base to take their respective camps, fight to the death and have, you know, that soundbite or a little camera bite that they can, you know, then use to monetize their campaigns. So they're almost compelled to do that irrespective of their actual feelings. So we are almost going to be forced into that drama. And then when that resolution I feel ultimately does come, we probably rip, but with that rip, I think that there is a, a bearish outcome ultimately because that liquidity where you need to, to top off the, the the checking account for Janet Yellen as she needs to go from zero or some closeness to zero to back to multi-billions, she has to issue treasuries and that money comes back out. And that with that liquidity, you could easily argue that just turns equities right back. Yeah, that's kind of my, I mean, my gut is, is that there will be a one day trade around the resolution that's like, you know, Oh, thank God they solved it, followed by, 
what just happened, right? Um, we saw exactly that in 2011, by the way. I think that's a model that I think most of us are familiar Even with. Even that was so dumb. I mean, they just punished the Boy Scouts that wanted to go visit the Washington Monument and things like that. Nothing that actually matters, yeah. you know, got shut down. So it was just a bunch of theater. Yeah. So to, 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 to where we have the various, you know, pressure points, um, you know, uh, a very popular chart now is the move, which is like 140, which is like kind of, off the charts high versus the VIX at 17, 18, which is below its long-term average. One, how do you reconcile that? And two, is there a trade there? So it's, it's funny that you asked that because that was actually exactly what I was wanting to ask you. And I don't know the answer to this question. So I know you guys are interviewing me, but I actually want to ask you this it question. Works well, you, you feel free. Yeah. Um, so there's the duration that is implied on equities. For instance, Tesla has a longer duration than ExxonMobil. Um, that duration is expressed in years versus the move. And I do not want to talk to you about the move any more than anybody else. But my understanding of it is, is that it is a, you know, a, a, it's the VIX. It, it's the VIX, VIX bonds, but it's also other tenors. No, it's not. It's not? Well, it's, it's one month volatility on twos, fives, tens, and thirties, but it's only a one month straddle. So it's like, it's functionally... It's not quite the same. It's at the money options as opposed to the whole skew surface, but it's it's the VIX for bonds. No, but I mean, I'll, I'll, so I'll answer the question you're, you're asking then. Um, is there a mismatch is what I'm trying to figure out? No. It looks like there is, but there really isn't. Um, you know, so the, the, as you well know, um, for any liquid instrument, you know, short dated options or liquid stuff, um, implied trades over realized by 8 to 12 percent, which is why you have these you know, large hedge funds that just sell straddles every day and delta hedge, they earn the insurance premium. And so if you go looking at the move versus the VIX, what you see is rates are moving a lot. You know, they're, they're moving like 120 and the moves at 140. So it's like, there you go. And, and th that number, by the way, is just a, it's just a, it's a basis point number. It's how much, it's, it's one standard deviation. So if I said that the moves at 100, that means that the odds will be at 66%, 68%, will be plus or minus 100 bips a year from now. So move at 140, yeah. will be plus or minus 140 basis points a year from now. VIX With an is, emphasis on tens, by the way. Uh, VIX, VIX is very similar, you know, functionally. Um, and stocks aren't moving, you know? And, and, and so the realized ball is different. But, but the thing is, though, is that if you go back the lens up and look at the three main drivers of risk, which is duration, when you get your money back, credit, do you get if you get it back, convexity, how you get it back, path dependency. And those three, and you can look at them as the shape of the curve, as a measure of duration, um, credit spreads, and then ball um, for, for, for convexity. They go up and down together over the big picture. But can you trade them over a one, two, three month period? Not at all. A suicide trade. So that's why I was, was saying it's trapped for you, kind of, because I'm curious. If, or maybe you found a way to do it. I, it's never a trade I would take on because it's just... It, it, it's it's they the VIX of the move will converge, and they will converge at the grand denouement of when we figure out, you know, are we in a recession yesterday? Um, you know, um, just to remind people because it was a previous interview, the one-year rate now is 520. The one-year rate a year from now, via you know, bond math is 360, which basically means the Fed has to go theoretically cut their rate by 160 bips over, over the next year. Is that gonna happen? Um, I say no, because the Fed's not cutting rates until at least next year, in my opinion. Mike would say yes, because he'd say, 
we're not in a recession now. We're in a recession yes, like we already started. We're already in a depression. We just don't know it yet. Um, and that's the, that's, that's the little battle we have over here. Um, who's going to win? I don't know either. Harley will win. <laughs> I, I actually struggle with, with both of those. How we trade interest rates is different. So, you know, you have time and you have price and yield curve space and you have the shape, the shape of the yield curve. If you just isolate the 10-year note, what we're looking at is the term structure of the volatility only within the 10-year note. And then we are typically arbing out relative value trades within that. So it's like within, you know, um, a fractal math of that. So it's going deeper and deeper. Um, and insofar as what is the rates market going to do or what will the Fed be compelled to do? I don't think anybody knows. And as what we just discussed in the last 48 hours, even the June futures, the ZQ futures have moved up almost double. So, I mean, the probability, not the actual future. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I tend to think that, you know, we're not going to go to 2% in um, inflation. And I don't think that the reaction function of that will be as swift as what is currently being priced in. And I don't think that rates go down that fast. Even if, even if we are in a recession now, I look at some of the macro indicators, and I'm not a macroeconomics uh, guy, um, but GDP was revised up. There are, you know, I guess pending home sales or ho new home sales came down, but existing home sales went up. Uh, the other way around. New home sales were, were up and existing were down. But anyway, there's a lot of reasons. Home sales were up from the revised lower number. They were lower than <laughs> expectations. <laughs> the, the, it, there is not an imminent calamity and mass that I see. Um, and how that is traded is, I think the discord between bond volatility, a few years ago, a 10 year note strata was, you know, two to three vol, four vol was something you always sold. Went to four, well, that's something's crazy and you gotta get rid of this. Um, now we're consistently at, you know, seven to nine and, and in the short terms, you know, double digits, which yep. is very high, you know, that's like a, you know, a VIX of 80, but for, you know, two years, and it's, it's yep. a very uncommon thing to have happen. And how that translates into equities, into credit risk spreads, I find to be difficult to trade because, frankly, they're antithetical. So I, I, so I actually agree with that. But the way I would phrase it is maybe slightly differently, which is uncertainty always is effectively a caustic stimulant, right? It creates, you know, the equivalent of a hernia or not hernia, uh, an ulcer, right? And it just slowly eats away at your capability of responding to stuff. The, the interest rate uncertainty is, has caused people to do things like defer new car purchases or to defer buying homes. And we see this in terms of the quantity of homes that are actually being sold is quite low. The share that is being sold of new homes because people are not selling their existing homes, they're not relocating for jobs, they're not making changing life choices, right, is creating the illusion that like things are doing relatively well. But the reality is, is it's a very structurally unstable position. And unfortunately, if you go back and you look at periods in history where this type of event, this type of dynamic persisted, it unfortunately leads to really bad economic outcomes, right? Because we don't really have a great sense. I mean, Harley and I can have a legitimate debate. <clears throat> are interest rates going to be zero next year or are they going to be 5%? And my choice of financing behavior it's going to be radically different if I believe that there's zero, in which case I'm going to do everything I possibly can to hold off refinancing something until next year, right? Whereas if I think they're going to be five, I might try to actually go through now, right? I might try to get stuff through now. What I'm seeing in, in most corporate decisions or in many corporate decisions is basically exactly that. Basically, people are frozen. And so... You know, we know that if it's correct, that high yield, that, that rates are going to stay in this range, 
that high-yield companies ultimately have to get used to the idea that this is a new world and they're going to have to refinance stuff, and that's going to mean tons of restructuring because they can't service their debts at these levels. Why does it have to be binary? Why does it have to be five or zero? Unfortunately, I'm pushing back on that, but I agree with almost every other syllable of what you said, which is people are stuck in their houses because they have it at 2%, yep. but they have equity this time around. So it's not quite as calamitous. They, they, they do, right? But they haven't, and they haven't lost their job yet, right? So, and that debt at 2% means it's relatively low cost to service it. But if I lose my job and I need to move for a new job, then I'm forced to go back into the market. And not only am I actually sacrificing that mortgage, but I'm also actually suddenly re-entering the market and saying, oh my gosh, I can't afford anything now. Let me, let me, let me, let me geek out for a second, but I, I promise this, this, this won't hurt too much. It's actually going somewhere. Looking at the universe where you play, the sandbox you play in, is the wrong price the, the uh, June versus SEP vol on TY, so yes. the, the, the time, is the wrong price the straddle versus the strangle, which is the skew, or is the wrong price TY versus US, which is a seven-year versus the 20-year? Yeah. Which of those three is the wrong number? Seven-year versus 20-year for me is too hard to trade because there's so many vicissitudes of what's happening that is our macroeconomic events that we have yet to see, we don't get those data points and we all get them at roughly the same time. And I find that to be more difficult to trade. The skew versus the out the money, uh, I think is completely tradable. Um, is the wrong price or is it fair now? Like, does the price reflect what do you think is reality or is there a supply demand disequilibrium going on there? It has been profitable for us to sell wings and, and hold me. So is that the correct trade? I guess by manifestation that I have it on. You're making money, I guess, the right Right. Trade. So, um, but it's also, we have it on modestly because of the lack of conviction. And so, so just, just very quickly, I just want to make sure, because sometimes, particularly when Harley geeks out, it never happens when I do, but... We lose people. So just when you say you're short the tails, long the meat, what you're actually saying is is that you're you've bought volatility near, right? So the at the money volatility, and you've sold out the wing volatility to offset some of the. It's carrying like he's long the hundred strike and then short the one twenties and the eighties. Yes, correct. So just as an example, say I were to make a, a private bet with you that how many times are you going to sneeze over the next 30 days? And you say to, to me, well, I sneeze on average 10 times a day. And so therefore, I'm going to multiply that times 30. And we're going to have an, a number. And that's the fair value of our bet. And then, you know, 25 days have now passed. So the chance of you sneezing 300 times in the next five days is much lower. So that's the idea that time has elapsed and the, the distant part of the trade has compressed and come into the yep. center part. And that is kind of the trade that we've elected to have on. I've never thought of using that example, but it's actually kind of a fun one. So effectively, you know, the 300 sneezes becomes a very low delta option, right? So it's- It can still uh, happen. It can unless still it's, happen. It's I could NVIDIA. Get, unless it's NVIDIA, right? So actually that's, I mean, this is one that we talked about very briefly, and I know you don't have a position in NVIDIA and we're not focused on trying to, to market something like that. But when you look at what happened today, right? The headlines that immediately hit were short squeeze. I don't see how that's physically possible because only 1% of the shares are short. There's tons of liquidity. If anyone not wanted to cover, yeah. I mean, we're talking, you know, it looks like the entire short book lost like $2 billion, which is a lot of money, but relative to a trillion dollar market cap company, it doesn't matter at all, right? And the odds are very, very high in my analysis that a sizable fraction of that short is actually people who are delta hedging out puts that have been sold by dealers, right? So when I it would have made money on the puts collapsing in value, right? So when I think about what happened in Nvidia today, what do you, what do you think can cause a six hundred billion dollar stock to jump 
800, you know, $200 billion in market cap, a new record. I think that whenever you have price in anything move above and beyond what it's expected, it's because somebody is forced to make an uneconomic decision against their desire. And that could be said for almost anything. If you have to sell your house, it's one thing if you have a year to sell it versus if you have 10 minutes to sell it. So when you have an extreme earnings beat in NVIDIA and you have a 25 plus percent move, the idea that there was options that were priced out of the money that were deemed to be fat and was priced to be either perfection or go down. And now those options are Delta one where they were Delta 15, Delta 20, and you have to buy many more shares back because what is the, what was the 10 Delta option is now a 50 Delta option um, is after this move, they're almost all hundred, but yeah, anyway, it's, yeah. well, if it's say just at strike, whatever. Um, but if it's, if it was 15 and I was slightly above strike, the finance a hundred. Um, but my point is, is that whenever you see something that, is priced irrationally based on history, I feel is it's compelled purchasing or selling, whether it be going down or going up. You saw that in the bond market, you've seen that innumerable times, but whenever there's something that's like, wow, I can't believe that, how much that thing moved, it's because somebody has to cover their pain. So I think that's probably right. And the rumors that we're hearing, of course, is that there's a one by two call spread that somebody saw. Again, the numbers feel very small to me. The thing that I think surprises most people mean much less so because of my theories around passive is what I would just describe as what seems to be relatively small changes in supply and demand and the magnitude of the move that has actually emerged from it. And then the second thing that, that is fascinating to me is effectively this dynamic of we were at 300 yesterday, we're at 390 today and people's, you know, people who are messaging me and calling me on it like, God, that's a crazy overreaction. And yet we go sideways. Right. right, like 390 is like it's 385 is the new right price, right? Um, magically discovered after a day. Now, the, the irony, of course, is that the academic literature would treat that as an incredibly efficient market, right? That that is an incredibly, crazily enough, that's an incredibly efficient market because the academic definition of efficiency is how much of the volume can be explained by the release of information and how quickly does it incorporate it? And oh, look, it immediately incorporated in the new release of information. And what you're saying is actually, no, it's a non-economic buyer who's forced this. Why does it stay there now? What's your, what's your thought on that? I think that there is a pro rata contribution from flows, economic decisions in the derivatives market. And with the increase in just volumes and interest in the derivatives market, you're getting a much more of positive feedback loop in both directions, um, where you're getting these reaction functions that are being pulled forward that normally would be expressed in shock and stock. And now they're being expressed in options because there's a lot greater number of people that are trading in these products and they're expressing their opinions in them. And then when you have something like NVIDIA and you have these very unprobable moves, people are short these options. And then when it rips through their short strike, they have to cover. Yeah, I think it's an uneconomic decision for them, and they know the deal, and that their counterparty knows the deal. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I'm, I think I'm asking a slightly different question, though, which is, I can see how that leads to a spike, I'm forced to cover, and then rationality reintrudes, and it goes back to 330, for example. Maybe it should be 10% higher on a significant earnings speed. Why do you think it stays at that 390 or the 385? You're right, I didn't answer the question, and the, the real answer is I don't know. Um, but if I were to speculate, I would say that because those positions have been taken off yeah. and there's no new information. I also think that if you say that the new information is out and therefore the new price has been achieved and that new price is the is the proper price, 
if that was the case all the time, there would never be anybody making money ever. It would always just be the new thing. The new thing is flat until there's the next new information or speculation on that new information. And that's where I think flows can dominate um, rationality. Because if you are an equity analyst, you do a, you know this kind of cash flow model on NVIDIA and you say, okay, their next new earnings is going to be X plus five because of, uh, I, you know, because of all the new information that's coming out. I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea if that right price is 390 or 280 or 580. But I do know that if there's somebody that has, you know, $500 million of calls that they have to cover between now and the, the, the end of business, and there's that's the deal, and everybody knows it, I could see it easily just being like, well, these are, these are now 100 delta, they're flattened out, it's, re, it's re reduced to zero, and that's the, that's the it, that's it, that's the paper's over. Yeah, I mean, so, so, so my hypothesis on this is effectively, is, is that I think that's absolutely the dynamic that gets it to 390 or 385. And I think what happens next is actually the really interesting part about the passive flows, right? Because at that price, that's the right price to Vanguard. They're going to buy at that price. They're going to come in and support that. And if there is no further information, exactly as you were pointing out, the only conviction player is the one who was given money and told you have to buy because of index construction, right? And so they're the ones that are continually receiving flows in the neighborhood of a billion and a half dollars a day. They're the natural buyer, right? They're the one who shows up on the open and says, that price looks fine to me. You and I might look at it and be like, oh, I think it's going to return to, here's the 200-day moving average. It may come back towards that. There may be some mean reversion. That model doesn't exist for the passive players. I agree. And I've never been a technical guy. And I don't know that I've ever met anybody that makes money over long periods of time, above and beyond statistical luck. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I've seen guys that have picked spots because of lines, and it works in short periods of time. But overall, I would chalk that up to luck. Yeah. You were saying that you think that things are happening because people have bad consequences if the move is more than like you know the, the straddle, uh, more than expectations in the market. So indicates people being surprised. Do you think that the Fed has somehow created moral hazard via their policies in the last four, five, eight years, where they basically took their policies, pushed the VIX down to like twelve and the move down to like sixty and it almost becomes anchored there once it's been there long enough. I mean, we, we, I mean, I think all of us were surprised that when when tens got above two and a half, just because after it had been at two for X number of years, it's like almost shocking that it could go anywhere else. I mean, did, did the Fed? I mean, are we still kind of recovering from this thumb on the scale from the Fed, or or are we back to normal? So, to me, your your question really results in what I would think would be the most interesting part of this conversation, which is what's the trade, and. What I think the trade is for the balance of probably 2022, 2023, is some core, some kind of a risk-defined strangle condor type of concept, such that if the market rallies, you're probably going to get some kind of bearish. And just to be clear, market, you're talking tens here, right? I'm actually talking about equities. Equities, but okay. But that same logic could apply both ways. So as to say that we go from 4,000 to 4,400 or something like that, well, then inflation might start picking up and that would manifest in the bond market as well. And then you come out with some kind of hawkish comments saying that, well, you know, we really got to get down to two and it just isn't happening. So we have to stay higher for longer. Market sells off, market goes to 3,600. And now they're saying, well, you know, people are losing their jobs and we have to save the, you know, the little guy. And they come back in and they, they produce a put out of thin air with their language. And then market goes back to 4,000. And what you've ended up having is a whole lot of nothing that is, you know, bounded by the pressure that is being put onto financial types from political types. 
you're describing the opposite of your current trade where you want to go and sell the belly and buy the wings. What I'm saying is I want to sell the wings in general, whether again be strangles or condors, with the condors just being risk-defined, strangle being undefined, but you can size it so it's the same. Um, if you have a range-bound risk-defined trade, I feel that is a trade that has a larger statistical probability of winning than just saying momentum to the up. We're going to 5,000. We're going to 3,000. I think that on the way to 5,000 or 3,000, you'll have plenty of opportunity to collect gamma or collect theta with the gamma that's dying. That's what I think. So you are effectively saying, while there's a lot of path trajectory that you'd follow over the course of that, you're basically saying continued consolidation. Well, the VIX 18 is the right price then, kind of, sort of. VIX 18 is the right price because if you look at where interest rates are, where cross asset volatility in general is, specifically within currencies, commodities, it's all higher. So the idea that VIX goes to 10 a la 2017 or in realizes six, I just don't see how that's possible. And that's also an artifact of a lot of vol selling program programs where guys were selling vol to make money that have since blown out. So those VAR swap guys that are out there pounding on volatility or these you know, instruments like a XIV or something like that, those don't really exist in their, in their prior form. So these compressors of volatility and a relatively stable environment, it's just not the same. So to say that you know, the, the mode of VIX used to be you know, 17, will it now, now hover at 19? You can easily make a case for that. And I, I, would, I might add an additional wrinkle to that, which is just to say that the dynamics of zero DTE have removed so much of the volume from the 30-day expiry, right, that you know, I, I actually kind of think that might be right, but I would describe it as the risks of us having an interim spike before the end of the year on some event, right? Effectively, a, an, an accident of one form or another that takes the VIX to 40, for example, or takes credit spreads out, it feels very high to me. I, it, you know, I'm not. Um, the biggest one is so there's there's two or three separate components that I would would hit on. One is is the underlying dynamic. You mentioned the TGA, right? So I'm seeing very much that the credit markets themselves are actually compressed by a lot of these dynamics, particularly as we're seeing um, issuance in, high, in IG that in turn has to be hedged into a treasury market that is impaired in liquidity because of the, the um, debt ceiling dynamics. They're actually pushing yields significantly wider. That in turn is leading to the perception that risk is very contained within credit, even as we're seeing the credit markets themselves reflect tremendous deterioration, right? There is no ability to reissue. Many of these corporations are actually facing significant issue components to it. Um, the second is exactly what I was highlighting, which is it feels to me like we're actually sclerotic at the 30-day point. It feels to me that we're actually um, relatively poor in terms of our ability to handle that move to the tails. And so to use your example, like if you think we're going to hit 3,600 at some point in the S&P this year, I think there's a very high probability that when we hit there that the VIX is 45 and change, which is higher than it should be. So it's not going to slide down, it'll be a gap down. That's kind of the way I look at it. Which, which by the way, we can't possibly imagine what that would be that would cause that. I, I would disagree. Okay, that's fine. Um, and the reason I would disagree is because, as we all know, volatility is very path dependent. And much like my puts that went to heaven in 2022, the path of volatility has to be such that it has to be greater than what was priced into it at trade inception. 
And the relative underinvestment and overhedging of equity books now, I think would be difficult to get those shocks where people that are forced to cover vol or sell at a path that is steeper than what was already priced in. And topping off the TGA is something that is predictable and can be monitored. It's not a COVID shock. It's not a, you know, a shock to the system in a very compressed period of time, again, that causes people to make decisions that are difficult for them. I think it is more predictable. And if we get to 3,600, I would anticipate it would happen for those liquidity reasons outside of a war, COVID or whatever else. Um, I think that it would happen at a rate of change that is digestible by the existing equity markets and VIX markets. Interesting. Okay. I, I, so my read on that is, is if we were to drop down to that level, that there's actually quite a bit less hedging at the lower points. What do you... What do you 3,200. Yeah, that, so that, that would be the question. But if, if, if you are saying that everything has been migrating from 30-day VIX to zero-day VIX, so when you that implies that something's happening in the here and now that's not going to happen in the future. So what's to hedge when there is nothing to hedge? Why buy car insurance when you would have no car? That's, I think, part of the point is we do have a car. What I would say that where we are right now is it feels much more like why buy car insurance because we haven't had any accidents. That feels more like the environment that we're in, but I, I could absolutely be wrong, right? Um, I mean, you, you, you have a sobering perspective on it from the long vault per- dynamic. I think that it is neither one or the other. The other, I don't think this is a binary case where you're right, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, you're right. I think it is, you see a lot of people expressing their opinions in the op- options market where they might have just gone out and buy SPY previously. And then when you have a bunch of SPY, you feel some kind of compunction to hedge your SPY so that if SPY goes down, you don't get destroyed. Right. If you buy a call option, you don't, need, you don't need to buy the put option. Exactly. So when you don't have this put option that doesn't exist, somebody else isn't short that same put option that doesn't exist. And therefore, nobody needs to cover it when they sold it for a buck and bought it back for 10. So I, so I might say it slightly differently, though, because what I'm actually seeing is people do still have puts, but they actually have put spreads. Yes, you can right? see that in the curve. Right, exactly. So if you have a put spread, you've actually sold the further down move. So if I get down to 3,600, my put spread ceases to be an effective hedge, and I now need to go buy 3,400 puts in order to continue to hedge. When you source that, that's what I, that's where I see the actual spike occurring, right? People effectively saying, oh my God, now the delta of my portfolio, which went through this wonderful period of, you know, um, I, I have low delta because I have a put spread on. As you come out the downside of that put spread, suddenly the delta starts to pick up in your portfolio again. You need to actually rehedge. I think the conversation is in the, the semantics, I guess, would be boiled down to rate of change and the rate of change or rate of change. So I don't know any more than anybody else how fast we get to 3,600 if we ever do go there. But I think that because of the macroeconomic forces that are predictable, you need something like a COVID and the planet shuts off uh, to get that, you know, VIX spike to 80. It doesn't have to go to 80, but, you know, you said 40. So let's just keep with what you said. That still implies something north of a 2% move per day. And that is still quite shocking to the system. And the amount of you know, kinetic energy that it takes to keep a VIX at 40 is quite high. It's quite high. And I think you're, you're dead right about the everyone's spread off because anybody who bought an option downside in the last 18 months has lost money on that downside long volatility. Uh, ask me how I know. So you know, that dynamic, I think, much like the rest of the planet, I also have you know, spreads as opposed to just being like 
long puts that die of money death every day. Um, and because of that spread off, and you're, you're right. You know, so you have the 38, 35 spread on, 3,800, 3,500 spread on. And now we're at 3,500. What do you do? Do you re-engage? But if you are there, the spread dynamic and the skew has changed to be something like relatively skewed to probably relatively flat. So the new new is not quite as punishing because now at 3,600 in our analogy, the at the money vol is going to be something like 35 to 40, but the out of the money vol isn't going to be 90 or whatever else. This will be much flatter. And if we do bounce back as that vol compresses with time, it will allow the market making community to buy some of this back and buoy the market. So I'm not really afraid of like a crash to 3,000. Have you seen with rates going from zero to five in barely a year, any you know, changes in your market making, you know, process. Like, I mean, the, the bigger issue, you know, is like if if if, if spooze is at four thousand, when rates are zero, then the forward, you know, might well be at thirty eight hundred, and therefore a call option looks cheap because it's in theory out of the money versus the forward. And with rates at five, you now have the forward at forty two hundred, so the calls are very rich. Do you with this changing in 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 the in the financing rate has that changed? Your, your trading abilities or, your, or what the trades you see or trades you put on? Or does it create limits for you in terms of capital that you go assign? There's a bunch of questions in there. Um, I think anybody who trades options for real knows how calls and puts are mirror images of each other in regarding interest rates and interest rates go up, you know, your calls go up. Um, and that's priced in pretty instantaneously. Um, there is some difference in the implied borrow and the implied future dividend streams that are you can you can disentangle those from put call parity right you know if you see that the borrow is based uh the reversal is priced at 30 cents based on a one percent interest rate then that same reversal can go to a totally different price but again that's all kind of priced in so because it's been taken in by the market at the same time by everybody it hasn't really changed much of course the rates have changed well, I would push back that most people have no idea about how interest rates work and, and, and forward pricing and, and everything else, at least people who read my stuff. Um, but what, what, what I'm saying is that when we take the rate from zero to five, your risk reversal, let's say you're out of the money call, risk, that changes dramatically. And all of a sudden, it looks crazy cheap for people to, to sell calls and buy puts. So I'll make you a bet there's a lot more of that going on now than there used to be when rates were at zero, which might change what you do, or maybe it doesn't. Well, there's a lot of call, there's a lot more call overriding effectively is what you're describing in those conditions. Although ironically- What's gonna happen is if it used to be um, a year and a half ago, it was the like the 5% out of the money call versus the 10% out of the money put would mm -hmm. be zero cost. Yep. Well, now I'm, I'm, I'm gonna make you bet you could be darn near flat or maybe even a slight credit. Sure. So, you know, I remember in 2017, it was like 25 to one. So in other words, you sold one put and you bought yeah, 25, 25 calls. calls. And it was just like these, these, these riskies were trading crazy numbers. Uh, and you're right. That's completely flattened out. And it does change the dynamic. But for me, as somebody that comes from the market making space, it changes slowly enough where it doesn't freak me out. And I don't think the opportunities are such that, you know, there's, now there's 10,000 calls where I thought they, you know, a dollar away from where they, they should be. I don't see dislocations in pricing anywhere near that good that frequently because it all kind of happens at the same time. When you think about, um, so I mean, this is actually an interesting question from the standpoint of how much of that change is of the moment 
and how much of that is a truly structural component. So yesterday, for example, I was meeting with Citadel's option making team, option market making team. Are people that much better in the space today than they were 10 years ago? No, it, no, no, I, I don't think so. Um, I you know were you know Dutch tulip traders dumb in 1650? Probably not. You know, if you could have bought a house with a tulip today, would you have bought it? Well, if you could buy two houses tomorrow, you might have. You might have been wrong too. Um, I don't think that people are inherently any better or worse. I think that the, the I think the biggest changes are that things that used to be in house at Susquehanna or my firm or Citadel Securities didn't exist at that time. Those individuals have now branched out and started their own firms. So the idea of buying a vol surface, you know, it's like buying a rocket program. You know, you had to be NASA. You couldn't go out and buy a rocket or the parts for a rocket. It's national security. So the idea that you can buy a vol surface or you can buy a, a, a model from anybody off the rack. And just to be very clear, when you talk about buying a vol surface, this is basically the data that allows you to build an option pricing cube, right? The, the Even easier. Yeah. Because you can actually buy the, the data and the model. Yeah. And then you can, you know, tweak the model as you see fit. But all of that was built in-house. A lot of the concepts that are even on Twitter these days were like in-house proprietary ideas not that long ago. But as these, as this group of information becomes more democratized, the, the cleverness has to be increased. Um, but this, this stuff that is really what drives price more often than not, I don't think is really that different than the floor. Whereas, you know, you have a guy that's, you know, making markets in a thing and he's got, you know, a million dollars in his account and now he's down 500 grand. He literally turns around and walks out. And if you're doing that electronically, you just, you know, yank the, the cord out of the out of the yeah. wall or you just turn off your machine or you widen your spread so as it effectively doesn't trade. It's the same concept and that goes to your passive comments about, you know, there's being these liquidity vacuums. We haven't been challenged with that lately, but I absolutely think that there is a discontinuous pricing as a function of that. And I think that the human nature part of things has changed, but I don't think the people are inherently better or worse. They're quantier for sure. But there are plenty of guys that were, you know, in the 80s that, you know, might have been a plumber that ended up being market makers that were genetically very smart guys. They just didn't have a PhD in physics. Um, and now that's changed because it's been programmatic. Um, but I don't think that the overall intelligence, I would say that the intelligence of that speci specific Subject matter has probably increased, but the breadth has decreased. I think that's actually a really good description. I, I see more and more narrower focus yeah. where you try to talk to people about cross-asset dynamics or even cross-strategy components. And they're like, oh, yeah, I, I have no idea. Right. I, like, I'm the ultimate beans guy. Yeah. I've got a five sharp. I uh, work at the Board of Trade, and there's four of us in a room, and we're amazing. And we're great at beans. What's corn? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that is a rough analogy of what I'm talking about. The, the, the breadth has diminished. Yeah, I think that's actually a fair comment. I think that actually contributes to some of the dynamics that we were discussing earlier in terms of the difference between, you know, the rate fall and everything else. Basically, they never meet, right? Um, are you saying that I don't know a hill of beans? You are not a beans guy, oh, okay. which, you know, I'm glad. But, yeah, um, but to, to, to that point, so say, for instance, we all were hired, you know, by, you know, Citadel today. You know, you would be, you know, the beans guy, I would be the corn guy, and you'd be the, the rates guy. Okay, the idea that you learn rates as well as he learns beans is not likely unless you are appointed to his desk. And the only way you become proficient in all three of these you know, items is that you either own the firm or you get moved around. 
or you get fired and somebody else hires you for a, a similar but not the same job. And that's why I think that it is difficult even for the smartest people to get that breadth yeah. because you just don't have the experience. How do you become an ear surgeon if you're already a heart surgeon? They're not the same. They're similar, but they're not the same. And so if you, how do you go from a beans guy to a rates guy? Well, the guy has, your boss has to push you to that desk. And in absence of that uh, movement, you just don't learn the product. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a really interesting component. And it's also, there's just an institutional, you know, there's an institutional component to it, right? Why would you want to take somebody whose expertise is in beans and have them extend it to corn, right. right? There's not really a reason to do that. And then the second component is, is that by and large, because active discretionary management is not growing, the opportunities for people to step into roles and then grow to give somebody else the opportunity to step in. Instead, you see people basically latching on with their fingernails. They're like, man, I am the beans guy. Right. You don't want to bring anyone else in to talk beans because I'm the only one who knows beans. I would say that the, the, the big difference between now and 20 or 30 years ago is not that we had farmers, now we have beans people who only know things. I, I think the bigger difference is the, the volume and the subsequent collapse of the bid offer. I mean, I used to trade options on like a 25 cent bid offer and both sides would trade easily. Yep. And now people make markets, three cent wide markets. Now, they're more profitable at the, at the top end because you're doing so many more trades and making three cents. I mean, I would trade much less, but I mean, that's a whole different animal. Trading massive volume on very tight spreads is a different business than trading fewer options. Because if you're trading those 25 cent bid offer, when I, when I bought it, like I wasn't getting out of that thing for a day or two, whereas now you're out of it in, 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 in a microsecond. Yes. So it's a, it's a are, they, are you smarter to do that? What's the word smarter? But I know that I certainly couldn't survive in, in, in the current world. But, it, but you wouldn't be able to survive in the current world, although you're thriving and you're doing quite well, Harley. But the, the part of the problem or the dynamic that emerges around that is, is if I presume that I can always trade at that three point spread as compared to the 25 point spread, right? I'm making an assumption that that's always going to be there. One of the things that Noel was highlighting, though, is, is in today's world, there's much less need to protect your franchise value. So if I go back 20 years ago, you were the CBOE guy for a particular stock. You would write the option. You would have the option-making, market-making authority for that one stock. And if you screwed that up, you could get, you could lose that relationship. You could lose the trust of the people, et cetera, very quickly. Citadel's not going to lose that. Because candidly, if they walk away from Apple market making, they're going to be like, well, would you, did you expect us to lose money? Like, why, why would we ever do that? And it's a, it's a very rational statement until you actually recognize that part of the process of making markets and protecting markets and, and building them over time is actually people willing to say, I'm willing to lose some money today. The more interesting thing that you're trying to get to, though, is that the very tight bid offers give the illusion of liquidity Totally agree with And that. the reason why you have implieds trade 8 to 12 over historicals, one of them, aside from you know, kurtosis, is gap risk. Mm -hmm. is, is, make, is that markets are not continuous, that you can't trade as much as you want at every price. And, 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 and so you've almost made things actually almost worse for people because they, when you're taking a 25 cent bid offer, I mean, you knew that you, know, you, you had issues, man. Now it's like everything trades all the time. You, you have this false sense of security, which... which um, so uh, I, I think you get rarer but larger surprises. I, I can video would speak to it. I can give you guys a, a specific trade. And going back to your, uh, you know, your your floor stories, I got a, I have a billion of those. But I remember when I was trading Lycos, um, and I did a hundred lot trade versus the Susquehanna guy, and I, there was an audible ooh, 
as if it was a big trade. And you know, now 100 lot is just like, it's invisible. Um, but going back to that last point about liquidity, um, we were doing an Amazon earnings trade where you know the earnings date was in question. So what happens is there's there's two at the money straddles or a vol surface within these two questionable periods. Is the earnings date going to be in this time period or the next time period? The market doesn't know. So the, what the market does is it does the rational thing is it splits the difference. So what we did is we figured out when the earnings was going to be. So we put that spread on. But you know because we had to do it enough size, we would go out and we would sell something like you know a few thousand options per line, and then we would price it to go a quarter through the bid or the offer, depending on which side of the time spread you want to do. And, you know, we would get, so we would go out and spray the market with, you know, 5,000 each strike for our size. And, but we would only get three to 500. Um, and even though in, in theory, had we been filled on all of these, we would have you know, hundred thousand options on. It wasn't, it was nothing like that. It was more like, you know, 10,000. So that liquidity, when you see it as being like, oh, you know, 50,000 up, it's just not true. Yeah. No, I think that's right. They, they just they they can take it away so fast that it just never was there. Yeah, I I just describe it as I think it feels to me like the market is increasingly short gamma to the market makers, and that has always been there's always been an element of truth of this. I don't want to romanticize the past because I don't think that's actually appropriate. But what Harley's talking about when you're trading twenty five cents wide, that actually does give you the ability to say, okay, you know what, I'm gonna take some stuff onto my prop desk, I'm gonna deal with it, et cetera. If I'm pricing three three cents wide, you know, now all of You're a sudden, out. well, you, like you, you literally, you have to delta hedge that on a nearly continuous basis because gap risk will kill you. Right? I, I think that based on the conversations that I've had within the market making community, that they don't. They, they generate alphas in a six, 12, 24, 48 hour period and they just ride it, you know, as opposed to the concept of buying an option for 12 and a half cents below the, the Theo and then hedging it out and making some little, uh, you know, few cent profit. It has been the judgment of a lot of large market making firms recently to just say, OK, I'll wear these calls. And uh, because I think that Apple will go up based on these numbers of, that I have in my mind um, for the next 12 hours. And the math would bear out that it's right. And the profit, the profits. And it would also bear out that it's so you right. think you think ultimately that the market makers are trading more directionally now yes interesting i would not have guessed that yes that's super interesting we should have a conversation offline on that all right well this as always has been fascinating and a really interesting introduction i just want to remind people that part of the reason why we do this is is because the very technical features of the market the things that make up the individual players whether they're market makers whether they're sell side on the rate side the otc market whether they're buy side etc all of these basically play a role in what we see on the screens it's not as simple as somebody going out and saying well i really think that apple is going to achieve x in earnings or nvidia is going to achieve x in earnings the behaviors are all often determined by structures that were sold long time before forcing people to engage in different behaviors and that's true across every different component of it noel thank you very much i appreciate you coming up and talking with, with harley and i and we look forward to doing this again thank you all right if people want to get, um follow you you're available on twitter what's your twitter handle again it's at noel convex at noel convex okay fantastic thank you very much thank you
Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management, Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for informational purposes and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management, Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management, Inc. undertakes to advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes, and one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model and clients' results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.